Thank you for joining the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast with your host, Clayton Craddock. Yes, indeed. These drum beats were programmed by my guest, Sammy Marandino. This is the man that provided the soundtrack for my college years. I never knew how much of an impact this guy had on my life until I found out what he did. You're going to find out what he did too in my interview today on the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast. Semi Marandino was the drummer for the show Kinky Boots on Broadway as well as Pretty Woman. And now he's the drummer for Diana, a true musical story on Broadway at the Long Acre Theater. He's recorded and performed with many top artists, including Cameo, Michael Jackson, Billy Joel, Foreigner, Lou Reed, Aretha Franklin, Ziggy Marley, Hall & Oates, The Beach Boys, Pat Metheny, Joan Osborne, Anita Baker, Sophie B. Hawkins, Carly Simon, Paul Rogers, and Cindy Lauper. And did I mention Cameo? Yes, Cameo. <laughs> You'll find out more of why I keep mentioning Cameo when you listen our conversation. But without further ado, here's my man, Sammy Marandino, on the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast. Welcome to the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast. My name is Clayton Craddock. And what do Chrissy Hind, Dean Martin, Doris Day, Bootsy Collins, Zap, and Roger Troutman, Slave, Lakeside, Fazo, Heatwave, the Ohio Players, John Legend, Steph Curry, and LeBron James all have in common. They are from the same place as this man right here, the great state of Ohio. Thank you for coming on the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast. People don't know this, but I went to go see you play at Kinky Boots many years ago. And I gave you a hug. When you told me some information, I was like, oh my God, you... I just I grabbed him and I, I I held him like a baby because he meant so much to me in my formative years and I'll tell you why halfway through. Thank you for joining me, Sammy. Oh, thanks for having me, Clayton. It's a pleasure to be here. So Akron, Ohio, that's where you're from. Yeah, and you know I didn't realize I didn't even think about that, but all those cats are. Although I know you know LeBron, I'm a big <laughs> fan. He went to the same high school I went to for a year that I went to for a year. You know, oh really? Were you there when he was there? No, no, I'm much older than him. But uh, okay. my brother had called. I was in New York at the time. My brother had called me and said, you got to see this freshman. This kid is going to be big. Turns out it was LeBron. You know, he knew right away. So this guy's unbelievable. Great guy, LeBron. Just, you know, brought so much to, to back to Akron. Mm-hmm. Especially oh, when they won the championship. I was like, man, yeah, very, very happy for him. Yeah, yeah. I was a I was a Warriors fan at the time. I was a little upset, but look, <laughs> what he did in that game when he blocked. I don't. Know, are you a big basketball fan? Not huge, but you know, whenever he's playing, I watch him. Okay, so yeah, I follow him around. You know, and I was a, I actually went to one of the first Cleveland Cavaliers game 
when, when that team started up, my father bought us tickets and we went and there was nobody there, but it was great. Wow. That's yeah. cool. Do you have a lot of family back in Akron? Oh, I got a ton of family. I'm one of 11 kids. So wow. I've got uh, them and their kids and their kids. Now I actually have a new nephew just born this morning, Theo. So wow, congratulations. Huge family. Yeah. So you're one of 11 kids. My God. Uh, are you the youngest, oldest, in the middle? What's your? I'm the fourth, second boy, but the fourth, fourth kid. Is are you from a musical family like the the uh, what's the group? Uh, the Silvers. I don't know if you remember the Silvers back in the seventies. They did Hotline. Oh yeah. Or... <laughs> yeah. My my father was a musician. He played accordion. He was like the best cat in town. He played every Friday and Saturday. Taught a couple days a week. You know that's how he put us off through school with that accordion. And they, you know, my mom sang in the choir, and uh, some of my brothers and sisters play. But I'm the only pro right now. But um, and what what was your first musical memory other than your father uh, playing those gigs? Well, it'd be the you know like everybody else my age, you know Ringo, seeing Ringo play on, on uh, Sullivan. I know everybody says that, but you know the thing is that's what it was. You know, I saw him. He's like a freight train. I'm like. That's going to be me. That's amazing. Uh, I talked to Warren like, Olds about that. He said the same thing. Now, was it something back then where everybody knew that they were coming on? It's like, oh my God, you got to watch this at this time because there was no reruns back then, I don't think. Oh, yeah. It was a big hype. Everybody knew that the Beatles were going to be on. And so, you know, we were all like around the TV, you know, and my parents, too. They loved it. They thought it was the greatest thing in the world. You know, they, they saw that thing. They were, they were just as excited as we were. And it was Did big. You, did you hear about the Beatles before that? Yeah, we, you heard about them. You heard some music on the radio and stuff. But when you saw them, you know, it's different than today. You know, today, you, it's great. You go online, YouTube. I can see somebody doing a session right then. You know, can you imagine? I, I wish I could say, oh, yeah, John Bond, you know, Zeppelin's playing and I'm watching them record it. The Beatles are at Abbey Road. Being able to get that right away like you can now. But back then, it was a lot more mysterious, you know, so... When they did come on TV, it was like, whoa. I mean, it was such a big, big you know, punch to it. It was just exciting as can be. And I was, you hadn't seen anything like that. Did you eventually, did you like convince your, your mother and father that you wanted to get a drum set right after that? You're like, that's what I want to do. Can you give me a drum set? Like, how did, how did well, the drums actually come into your life? Well, I didn't have to do much convincing with them. My parents were really amazing about that. They're very supportive. And, you know, my father was always like, his whole trip was like, do what you like doing and just do it better than anybody else and just be happy at it. And then he was cool. Even if you were a garbage man, he's like, be the best damn garbage man you can be, you know, and then he'd be cool. But I was only eight then. And, and my father being a musician and teaching, you know, I said, yeah, I want to start playing. He was like, you know, you might want to wait a little bit. And uh, he says, you're a little too young to start playing. So, you know, so I was just messing around. I'd you know, be hitting around stuff. He said, he always felt 12 was a good age. So I was kind of waiting. So when I was 11, actually, he said, you know, why don't you go in? They're, gonna, they're looking for uh, kids that want to take lessons in school. And that was fifth grade. And so I went into the class after school, you know, and, and I said, yeah, I want to sign up for lessons. I said, what are you teaching? They said, cello. And I went, cello I said when are you teaching drums and they said next year I said I'll wait I'll be back and I just wow. walked out of the room because I don't want to play cello it's a beautiful instrument but it was drums you know so I waited 
to the next year to start quiet. And that was, that was, uh, pardon? Middle school. That was sixth grade. Yeah. I was Mm. 12, 12 years old. So, you know, I got the, you know, I had a pad, started on a pad like everybody else. And then, you know, one day my father, uh, my brother came and found me. I was out riding my mini bike and he said, dad wants you at home. He's pissed. I said, really? I couldn't figure out. I didn't do anything, you know? So he said, yeah, he's got to talk to you right now. I said, all right. So I, I, I'm like, oh man. So I go home. I walk in like, I'm like, yeah, what's up dad? And he opens up Ludwig's snare case and there's a snare drum for me. And he got me my first snare drum. You know? Did you start on, on the pad and playing um, traditional grip or was it match grip? or Traditional grip. Yeah. I started playing tradi- traditional grip was the first thing. And, uh, you know, that eventually I switched over, but, um, that, that was how, you know, back then, was how everyone was taught traditional. Do you still play traditional group? Not that often now. You know, it's, it's, I've been playing match grip for so long that, you know, it's, it's just a different thing, you know. And, and uh, you know, I could see where that it comes in handy and, and certain things. You know, it's a different feel. You know, you kind of pull it up from the drum instead of going into the drum. It's a whole, whole different thing. But I spent three years on that pad and that snare drum before I got a drum kit. So. Really? Yeah, yeah. My, they, they, my dad was like, you better learn all of that stuff. You know, and so I was very adamant about that. So I just practiced for three years on that. And then he, uh, he actually let me buy my first kit. Uh, we were doing the eighth grade. There was like a band show and, and I was building a bass drum pedal because I didn't have a bass drum pedal. I was going to use the marching bass drum in my snare. And he came home one Friday night and saw me trying to build a bass drum pedal. And he just kind of shook his head. He goes, come on. We got in the car. I went to this place, Ross Music Store. And they, uh, I picked out this little, I forget what it was called, like a Kent. I think the kit was called Kent. It was like a blue agate. Looked like a Rogers kit, but it was really cheap. It was a hundred bucks. And he said, you can buy that. He said, because I had some money from uh, paper out. He said, I'll pay for it now. He goes, but Monday we're going to go to the credit. You can get your money out and you can pay me back. And I was like, awesome. So I bought the kit. It was like 125 bucks. Bought a uh, crut symbol with the brand, <laughs> but you know it's backwards for Turk. K R U T. Wow. 15 inch crut symbol. So anyway, so I bought it, set it up, and used that for the show on that Saturday night. And it was my first drum kit, you know. And, uh, Who were you playing cool. with? That was that was with the the grade school band. Oh, okay. Okay. First song I ever played in front of people, King of the Road. You know that song? King of the Road? Look it up. Yep. Roger Miller was the guy, was the artist. Mm. It, was, it was a huge, big hit back, way back then. So anyway. Okay. Okay. Trivia. Interesting. I remember the first song. Actually, I don't remember the first song. I remember the first song I think I remember playing with somebody was Eight Days, Eight Days a Week by the Beatles. I was like, what is this thing? And the guy was showing me, and then we were just playing together. Anyway, I, I digress. Great song. Yes. Ringo's killing it on that. Just- yes. One of the things about the Beatles, I remember, I think it was in college, and I was looking at some video of VHS, and, and it was some kind of religious thing. They were trying to convince people about the dangers of rock and roll. And, <laughs> <laughs> and they were showing, you know, people you know, doing psychedelic stuff. And they were playing a song. And they're like, look at and see what this music does to people. And they were playing Tomorrow Never Knows. And people were like, you know, freaking out. I was like, oh, my God, that song is cool, man. That beat. <laughs> 
Oh yeah. Let me get more into this stuff. I don't know what you guys are afraid of, but this is cool. Yeah. But yeah, Ringo. Yeah, he's no. So other than Ringo, were there other drummers that you were looking up to back then? Oh yeah, there was. You know, you know the the biggest three that I really was inspired by, and some I played like, some I didn't, but they were still inspirational. The biggest was Buddy Rich. You know, I was a huge Buddy Rich fan. Saw him play back in the day. Um, just you know, Buddy's Buddy. There's nobody like him. Big band drummer. Never, never will be anybody like him. Just he's great. You know, and then John Bonham, of course, is probably one of my favorites, you know, and then Tony Williams. So, you know, I probably play more like Bonham. Um, I do like the way Tony, you know, a friend of mine introduced me to, to Tony Williams to the Believe It album. And I was like, whoa, because he was rocking. He was really into the whole rock scene at that point. You know, I love the way his hi-hats were just all sloshy and going, you know, and just he was so tenacious and aggressive. You know, so, you know, those guys were great. I mean, there's, there's a million guys, you know, as I look back, you know, uh, the drummer from the Bee Gees was awesome. Um, you know, there's just so many drummers that I've drawn from, you know, but back then it was mostly that, you know, but then as I got older, it would, it would change, you know, and then, you know, I'm like everybody else. I take a little from this one, a little bit from that one, kind of try to twist a little bit and make it my thing. You know, and then, you know, as I went on, there were other drummers, uh, Larry Blackman, huge influence on me. Now, who's that? Um, no, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Huh? I said, who's that? I yeah. Said, I'm just kidding. We'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you know, there, there's so many guys. It's really hard. You know, as I evolve, I'm always trying to listen and trying to get something. You know, there's guys, you know, Mickey Curry from the 80s, even currently, you know, one of my favorite all time drummers. You know, I'm always like, Listening, trying to just find something. Andy Newmark, Greg Erico, you know, I remember seeing Sly and it was like, who is this guy? Just seeing him on Midnight Special. Again, the thing, you had to wait back then. You know, I remember waiting to see the, uh, Greg Erico and, and Sly on Midnight Special. It was coming like, oh, coming in two weeks. And I was like, you know, you couldn't go online and just hear these guys and find it. So, you're waiting and waiting and in your head, you're kind of thinking of all these things. Oh, it's going to be this. What's it like backstage? I'm making up all these ideas of them getting into a limo, driving to the gig, you know, whereas now you just see all that stuff. So there's nothing really left to your imagination. And, that, you know, all those things kind of made me work harder because even whether they were true or not, they were in my head, they were true. And that's what it was going to be like. So I was kind of like excited about that stuff. When you were younger, you were played. You played in some drum and bugle chorus too. Just a little bit. Uh, th there was a band called the Royal Judels, and uh, I, I did a little bit. I did that for about a year, but it wasn't really where my heart was. And uh, you know, I, I, you know, I played that for about a year, and it was fun. It was it was a good education, but um, you know, it was. I always wanted to be in a rock band. Did you have any rock bands that you were in in high school? Yeah, I had I had my own band, and uh, with three other guys, my best friend, still my best friend to this day, my friend Pete. And um, what was the name of the band? It was called Milestone. Milestone? Yep. Oh. No relation to the, the uh, I, I think, uh, who was it? Was it Miles that had that? There was, there was an album called Milestone, big jazz album, but it was, it was a more of a rock band. So, you know, we played all of, you know, in the air, we played clubs and high schools and stuff. And then, you know, after that, when I left, 
uh, I joined this other band. You know, there was a couple other local bands, but there was one big band called Easy Street. We were like the big, the big fish in a small pond, you know. And we did really well. Played as much as we want. Made a lot of bread. Did you record any albums or like original recordings, or was it playing like covers of stuff? In that band was all covers, and you know, I ended up leaving the band because we had opened up for Tom Petty one time, and we played a couple original songs. But they they were all they were a great band, but. I had a lot bigger aspirations. And when I saw Stan Lynch playing with Tom Petty, I'm like, I need to move on from this band and get to New York. So it was, it was like kind of like time to get out of here. So after high school, you went to college or you just went, went right to, to New York? No, I went to college for one year. And uh, my father had said, try it for a year, see if you like it. But at the time I was working in the music store, which was really my only job I've ever had in my life outside of playing drums. So I was working in a music store, going to school and playing full time at night. And it was, it was a lot to do, you know. So after, you know, the first year I, I dropped out of school, I said, I told my dad, I said, I, I did my nine months, can't do it anymore. He was like, cool, you tried it. And then a few months later, I got an offer to be in a, in a local band that was going to pay me enough bread to live on. And we were playing like four or five nights a week. So I left the music store. That, that was in uh, 1976. I remember walking out of that music store and the wind kind of blew against my face. And it was just like, it felt so freeing knowing I was going to be in a band, making money, playing, you know, four or five nights a week in a good band with good players. And, you know, I've never forgotten that feeling. So whenever like a, a breeze comes across and hits me in the face like that, I remember that day. That's great. That's a great story. So the breeze was coming by and it was going through your flowing hair. Like yeah. we have. Like we have. <laughs> <laughs> the long hair that we all used to have. <laughs> and you, you, know, you started making money. And what was the thing that made you say, you know what, I want something more? Or, or made you want to leave Ohio? Did you think L.A., Nashville, and New York? And you say, let me just go to New York. Well, what happened was I was going to move to New York or L.A. I, I kind of decided I'm going somewhere. Because, you know, Akron was a great place to grow up. There was great, we were playing in rock clubs. I mean, I was playing to 1,500 people a night there in a local band. It was a really big scene that we were playing the Aurora Ballroom. We were playing all kinds of places. Uh, this place filled in Nassies. We were playing in Kent. There was a lot of clubs. There was just a lot of places to play and people showed up. So it was really great to play and to get that time in, you know, because there's, there's nothing like playing live. You know, you can practice all you want and you have to do that. But playing live for, you know, two, three weeks straight, five, six nights a week, you know, that's going to do more for you than just practicing for a couple of weeks, at least in my opinion, you know. So I decided I'm going to get out of here. I want more. I want to be in a band. I want to make records. I want to play with more people. I don't want to just be in a cover band, you know. So... As I was doing that, uh, a friend of mine who I befriended, uh, Lenny Williams, was a, was, a, was a young guitar player, and uh, he, was a, he was a poor kid from Ohio, you know, like me, you know, middle class, didn't have a lot of money, you know, but this guy could play. He was an amazing player, and he used to come in the music store I worked in, and uh, the boss would always push him out because he didn't want him, he didn't have any money to to buy stuff. He said, he's not going to buy anything. So when the boss would go to lunch, I'd call Lenny. Say, Lenny, the boss at lunch, come on down and play all you want. Because I loved hearing this guy play. He was just so good. 
So anyway, you know, and the boss, I see the boss coming back from lunch. I go, Lenny, you got to get out of here. And he'd run out the door. So anyway, we became friends. He got a gig with Chubby Checker. And he was out touring and he was, he would start sending cards and stuff from Australia, postcards and things. And to my house, because he was close with my family also. Anyway, it, one day he called me and said, right when I was thinking about moving to New York, and said, hey, uh, Chubby's looking for a drummer. He says, you want to come up? So I flew up to New York and auditioned for Chubb. And that's how I got from Akron to New York. What was the audition like? Oh, the audition was awesome. It was very short because they were playing at the Ritz, which is, I forget what it's called now, down on 11th, 11th to 13th Street down, down uh, downtown. Webster Hall. Now it's Webster Hall. Anyway, so they were playing. So they did their sound check. And then as soon as their sound check was done, Chubby said, okay, come on, Sam. He goes, time to play. So I get up to play. And they were playing kind of Ramon style. Like everything was like, it was fast, you know? <laughs> so he counts off the twist. Said, One, two, three, four. Da, 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 da. So I start playing, you know? And I'm like really into it. And I'm hitting hard. So we play about 30 seconds. And bang. I go right through the snare drum, bust the head. Oh, man. And I'm like, oh, shit. You know, I'm thinking... They just did their sound check. Everything was fine. I broke the head. Oh, man, it's over. And Chubby turns around and says, what happened? I said, I broke the snare drum. I'm sorry. He goes, you're hired. <laughs> and that was it. That was my audition. I mean, wow. 30 seconds a minute at the most. So what, would, what do you think it was? Because you hit hard or you were solid? Well, again, I had been playing for like... Uh, you know, four or five years, I had been playing five or six nights a week every night, you know, and I was playing in a, I was in a rock band. He wanted, wanted that. And so I was, you know, I was feeling pretty strong at the time and confident, you know, I came in and I just, you know, I had heard the, all the board tapes. I basically was prepared to play his whole show that night. If I needed to, I learned everything. So he knew he, he felt it right away. Like we just, it just hit, you know, but then, you know, I think breaking the snare drum to him was like, oh, this guy's pretty powerful and strong. And, you know, that was the thing. But in the 80s, you know, it was a whole different kind of playing, really aggressive, you know. And uh, that was it. And you went on tour with him for 18 months? Yeah, about a year and a half I went on tour with him. Might have seen New York City for two weeks total out of that year and a half. But we were playing six nights a week, two shows a night. And just playing all over the place. You know, I went to Europe with them, which was amazing. That was my first time in Europe. And um, But playing around the States and just playing that many nights, again, it's that repetition and playing live. You can't be, especially when you're younger, to learn. You know, playing live is going to do more for your playing because you're kind of just in the spotlight. You're playing. There's no, oh, let's start over. It's, you got to do it. You know, so you really raise your game, especially if you're playing with older players or better players, you know, it'll just kind of raise you up and you got to raise to that level, you know, that's, that's a big thing for me. You know, it's like things you got to get out and play. After Chubby Checker, you moved to New York city. Yeah. And that was, that was interesting because um, I didn't really know anybody here. I just knew a few people, you know, so I was basically uh, trying to get gigs, you know, and so I, I would go into the Village Voice at the time. You go in the back, there'd be some ads, you know. Did you ever answer the, uh, I remember when I first got here in, in the early 90s, I think they still had ads that said, you know, looking for a drummer, uh, no mercenaries, must have big hair. 
Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, there's all those, you know. No mercenaries. Yeah, well, it's good to get paid. You, you got to get paid, or it's a hobby, you know. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So you you were looking at you looking in the Village Voice, and you uh, did you find any specific bands that you wound up well, playing I with regularly? Yeah, I saw an ad. It said Idol needs a drummer, and I'm like Idol, Billy Idol. So I call up this thing and I tell them, you know, what I've done. They're like, great. So I go to this audition and it's a cattle call. There's a hundred guys there at least. So I do the audition. Now you never realize I had just been gotten off the road again, playing a year and a half straight nonstop. So, you know, my playing was pretty sharp at, at that time. So I go in and out of the hundred guys, I'm the only one gets the call back. I'm like, wow. great. I'm like, I'm, wow. Well, I'm thinking, oh, great. I'm in New York. You know, my first time in New York. Yeah. My head's starting to be a little bigger. <laughs> go back two weeks later, there's 50 guys. I beat them all, you know, go back the third time. It's down to me and like 20 guys beat them all. Damn. And then, then they say to me, well, there's one other guy that we had offered the gig to originally who had turned it down. And now he's thinking about doing it. So we want you both to come in. I'm like, okay. And I'm feeling really confident. Mm-hmm. So I go in, we both play, and at the end of the audition, I go, well, you played better than him, but we know him, and we really don't know you, so we're going to hire him. And it was like, bang, you know, but it was a good lesson to learn. I was like, I need to get out and meet some people, and people need to start knowing who I am. But I realized, you know, it's not just your talent. Like, you can be the greatest drummer in the world. It's also your relationship, you know, and different relationships you have with people, and, you know, so... That, that is a lot too. So you can't just go like, I'm the greatest drummer in the world. How come I don't work? You know, so there's, you know, it's, you've got to develop those relationships with people. You know, so, so instead of me taking it as, as being, you know, I was kind of angry. I really thought I was going to have that gig, and, you know, and at the time I thought it would really change my life, but looking back at it, it's better that I didn't get it because my life went in some other directions which turned out fine, you know, and, um, I had a lot of second place finishes actually. And, uh, but you know, everything you do leads you to the next thing you're going to do. You know, it's all lead, led me to where I am today. So, you know, it's hard for me to complain about not getting that gig, you know? So who were some of your other second place, uh, finishes? Curious. Thank you for listening to the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast. Stay tuned for more. If you like what you hear on the show, subscribe to the Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter at broadwaydrumming101.substack.com. That's substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K.com. The Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter is your one-stop shop for everything you'll need to know about playing drums for Broadway musicals. When you subscribe to the newsletter, you'll learn about what it takes to be a successful pit musician with content delivered directly to your email inbox two to three times a week. For $5 a month or $50 a year, you'll have a backstage pass to the world of a Broadway drummer playing on a hit show. As a paying subscriber, you'll receive behind-the-scenes access to the life of a musician who makes a living on Broadway. You'll also be able to read every post, not just those occasional free ones, You'll get access to all newsletter issues in the archives and have an ability to participate in subscriber-only comments and events. If you become a founding member for a gift of only $75, you'll receive discounted private drum lessons, 
an opportunity to watch Clayton play in the pit of his show, and a 25% discount on future promotional products. If you'd like to make a direct contribution to the production of this show, you can reach us at Venmo at Clayton-Craddock, Cash App at Syncopated, that's C-I-N-C-O-P-A-T-E-D, or PayPal at Clayton Craddock. Any amount of support will be appreciated. Thank you for listening. So what were some of the uh, second place finishes that you had? Well, one was with John Waite. I went and auditioned for him, got the gig on a Friday night. They said, we're going to start rehearsing next week. We'll call you over the weekend. Got no call over the weekend. On a Monday, I called him. And they said, oh, well, the bass player left, and we hired another bass player. And he said the only way he'd come is if he could bring his drummer. So lost that gig. And then, but the best second place finish I ever had that really led to more stuff for me was uh, I went for the psychedelic furs. Oh, man. And, love, um, love my way? Yep. <laughs> Sorry about and my hand here. On the way there, I was there a little early, and I had just moved in, into Manhattan. Um, I had because I had a place in Queens originally. I moved into Manhattan and paid my rent and my deposit and everything, and I had five bucks left to my name. So I'm on my way to this audition, and I'm like, well, I hope I get this thing. So on the way, I'm, I'm early, and I stop in this in this bar, uh, Prince Street Bar, and I'm having a beer. And I'm like, ah, I have a beer. So the beer was two dollars and seventy five cents. I was like, well, I can't buy another one. So I just gave the bartender the five. I said, I keep it. It's not going to do any good to me. So as I'm drinking that beer, I hear these two guys talking. And they're saying, should we put live drums on the session tomorrow? Or do you want to get somebody that does drum machine? Now, at that time, I had already bought my first Lindrum. And I was messing around with it. And I actually bought it to practice with, basically, to make sure my time was good. And so I just jumped into that conversation and said, uh, hey, man, I got a drum machine. And it's like, really? I said, yeah. They said, you any good? I said, I'm the best in New York City. <laughs> They're like, really? And they said, you know, you want to do a, um, a, a session with us tomorrow? I said, yeah, I'd love to. And they go, well, what do you charge? I said, what are you paying? And they said, well, we can give you 50 bucks. Now, in my head, I'm thinking 50 bucks. I could really use 50 bucks right now because I'm broke. And I went, well, it's a little skinny, but I'll take it. I'll do it for you. So I ended up doing this session the next day with them. And, you know, I went to the audition, went fine again, second place, didn't get that key. But I started doing sessions at this place, Park South, and the owner, the studio manager, Steve Rosen, who I'm friends with to this day, took a liking to me. And I can trace all my album work back to that beer at that bar that day. Wow. It, it just led to, there's a whole story of how it led to my follow-up. So the beer cost you two seventy five, but you gave him $5 total. Yeah, I, yeah, just, what am I going to do with the other two and a quarter? I had to tip him anyway, but I was just like, keep it. You know, so $2.75 led to you being worth $2,750,000. <laughs> I don't know. I saw uh, that on the internet. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so um, I want to go back to the Billy Idol thing. I can't remember the drummer that 
was on the tour back then. Do you you remember who got the? Oh yeah, yeah. It was. It was. Uh, we became friends. Greg Gerson, beautiful drummer, really yeah. great drummer. He was on on that. That that was the first uh, when Billy just came out. That was in eighty summer of eighty two. I think it was. Yeah. And okay. Greg Gerson, great player, great great player. I ask a lot of older people that were around in the seventies into the eighties. Now we're drummers who are used to playing live. You transitioned wonderfully into the world of drum machines. Did you see, when did you see the transition coming? Like, okay, I better get started on this drum machine thing because it's, it's going to be the wave of the future. Well, you know, what happened was I, I was living, you know, I, when I first moved to New York, I had a pad in Queens, just a room in a house that I rented, you know? And so when I came off the road, I was in there and I was like, I got to move into Manhattan. But for the, that summer, I decided I was going to just practice and make sure I had my stuff together. You know, I wanted to really tighten up my time. Then. So I bought like a little Roland 606 or something, a little tiny machine. And I got bored with it really quick. So I bought a Lindrum after that the LM2. And basically just to practice with I was like, you know, I took the loan out. It was 3000 bucks at the time. My dad actually co-signed for me. Alone, he put his house up as collateral. You believe that? Which I didn't know till after he passed. My brother showed me the thing. My father actually put his house up as collateral for a loan for me to get a drum machine. Wow. Yeah. And uh, it's crazy. But um, I, I started practicing with the machine. But you know, after I went and did that session, I, I realized you know I can make a career of this. Like it, it was, it was really fascinating because like, first of all, the sounds were great. It was just like a different sound. It was, you know, I've been playing for a long time and it just, I, I was totally um, excited by it. It was something new, you know, and it just, it actually wasn't something I planned. I knew I could do something with it, but it really took on a life of its own. It just got so much bigger than I even expected it to. You know, and it was, I was just fascinated by it. And I was always buying new drum machines, getting new sounds, making samples. It was, uh, to me, it just felt like an extension of my drumming. It wasn't like necessarily replacing it. It was just another part of it. You know, I always felt it was all linked together. Do you feel that the emphasis on the drum machine and electronics took away from your playing? In one essence, or, you know, like in essence, no, in, in one aspect of it, it did. And the other, it didn't like, I learned so much from programming because by programming, I had to really analyze everything I did as a player. You know, when I go to play, why does it feel like this when I'm playing? So like in my programming, I had grace notes, I had drags, I had rustle, things I could put in. So if I was like doing all this little stuff, it would do it, you know? And I, I made all my own samples, so it was actually me hitting the drum. I didn't like using other people's samples. I was like, if I'm going to program, it's going to be me that you're hearing, you know? So it made me really analyze playing. It made me learn a little bit more about making records, learn more about the studio. But then there was like a five-year period where the only time I picked up a drumstick was to overdub a Simmons stuff. So I wasn't playing live. I was so busy doing all this programming, you know? So, you know, there's, there's good and bad about it, both, you know? But I don't regret doing it, you know, but, you know, there, there, there came a point where I was just like, I'm not doing that. I made a choice not to do it anymore. And I just sold it all. So I'm done. Because you know? people forgot start, after a while, they forget that you're a drummer and they think you're a programmer. So after a while, I was like, 
you know, I don't like the title programmer. You know, it's okay for some things, but for me, I felt I'm a drummer. I want to be a drummer. And so I just stopped doing it. Like, not going to do it anymore. Who was the first session uh, with after that $2.75 beer uh, meeting? Who was that with? The first real session or because I did a lot of demo sessions. That, that, oh, the first session you mean that I did, it was a band called Our Daughter's Wedding. They were kind of like a poppy punk band. It was two guys and a singer and a guitar player. Remember the guitar player used to always walk in, he'd have a, he'd have a can of beer in a bag with straw. Every yeah. day, every time I saw him. <laughs> but, um, you know, that, that session was great. And, and that led to, from there, I started doing all these sessions at this place, Park South. This guy, Joe Venieri, was the owner. Steve Rose was the manager. So they had me on pretty much everything. Because, again, it was a new thing, and everyone wanted to do it. So I kind of, like, slid right into there. And then, you know, they ended up putting me on this Weather Girls record. It was the second Weather Girls album. And um, after that record, that's where I, I met Larry Blackman. And mm-hmm. that's where my career... Wait, Larry, Larry who? <laughs> I, I, keep, I keep saying that for a reason now I, this is where the rubber meets well rubber akron akron ohio is the, like the was the, the 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 epicenter of rubber but this is where the rubber meets the road in this conversation this is the reason one of the reasons why i hugged him at kinky boots now larry blackman was one of my all-time favorite musicians and influences and drummers because i grew up in the late 70s and early 80s grew up listening to the daz band ohio players zap fazo sky the time prince uh slave and cameo and i loved cameo from 1978 all the way to like 1988 then I got into, you know, back in the 80s, I got into rap music really heavy because, you know, rap music was in its prime, in my opinion, from like 86 to like 90, 93, 94. But in the early 80s, I was into Cameo a lot. So I knew I knew every single thing that they put out. And when and I was in college, a certain song came on in 1985 that everyone was dancing to and you were dancing to this guy's drum beat. So let's talk about Larry Blackman. You met Larry Blackman because you were in Park South Studios and he heard something that you did or how did that work out? Well, we were cutting these tracks for the, for the Weather Girls and, and I was out sitting in the lobby and uh, I'm reading the newspaper, just kind of paying it, not paying attention to anything because I was in between. They were doing something like an overdub. And uh, all of a sudden I hear somebody go, hey man, like uh, who's who's playing drums on this? I dig that drum sound. And I just, I'm, I'm reading the paper like this. I went, yeah, that's me. I didn't even look up, you know, cause I was kind of middle of an argument. Yeah, that's me like that. And then he goes, yeah, I dig it, man. He goes, you want to play on the next record? And then I looked up, yeah. <laughs> I look up and there's Larry and I'm like, Oh damn. You know? So I, I stand up, I introduce myself. He says, yeah, we're getting ready to do a new record. And I was, you know, checking out studios and stuff. And I really like the sound you got going on there. So you, you want to do it? And I was like, yeah, great. So the next week I'm in the studio with Cameo and we're doing Single Life. And it was just amazing because first of all, I love Cameo. And, you know, get to work with, you know, Larry's you know, one of the founding fathers of punk. Come on. It's like, 
the way he played was amazing, you know. So we did we did single life, and then he asked me if I wanted to tour with him. So I went to I did a little tour of of uh, UK with them about three weeks, and then on the way back from that tour, we were going back in to, and re- recorded the next record. And I remember Larry telling me, he "Goes, and I think I figured it out." He goes, "He goes, our next record's going to be huge." <laughs> he says, Great, and he says, "You want to do it?" I'm like, "Yeah, of course I want to do it," you know. So. Uh, we went in and we did the Word Up album. And, you know, first of all, just being around Larry again, but, you know, I learned a lot from him. And, uh, but when we did Word Up, it was just this total flowing, like ideas were just coming out all over the place with everybody. You know, it was just a really an interesting time, you know? And I try to get back to that time. Every time I do a session, I'm trying to get back to that feeling of like, I'm, I'm not thinking, I'm just kind of being, everything was just coming out, you know, and it was just an amazing uh, experience. And then we, you know, we got to make that record, which was pretty great. Did you do all of the drum programming for the Word Up album, like Candy, Back and Forth? Yep. Don't Be Lonely? Yep. Damn. <laughs> if I could reach through here, I'd still, I'd give you another uh-huh. hug. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I remember that hug. That was good enough. That's still holding me, man. My God. You know, I told a friend of mine that I was going to be interviewing you, and he's like, what? Nobody really knew, other than the people that I guess were inside of the, the, the family, that you did all the drum, drum programming for that. Yes, you know, Larry gets a lot of credit. And, you know, Larry had tons of ideas, you know. It's like Larry's still Larry, you know, and he had the vision for it. But yeah, it's, you know, some people know and some don't, you know, I, I should have done the video. I, you know, they asked me to do the word of video, but I had a session that day and I was like, yeah, I'm already booked and I couldn't do it. And, you know, looking back, I wish I would have done it. Would have been a little better visibility. Um, but yeah, um, that's me. So how did the, the word up drum beat get, you know, come in, you know, come into play? Like how did, how did that all come about? Well, Larry had that stuff in his head. He's like, hey, I hear this, you know. That's it. Okay. You know? So he said, you know, I hear this this kind of thing, you know, with the high going, you know. So I said, okay. So I started programming it. And I had this bass drum sample that I had the first sample I ever made with my Lynn 9000 when I bought the sampling card that I made in the in media sound with this engineer, Tim Hatfield. And it, it distorted when it was the first thing I ever recorded. And it was kind of went, and, and the, and the engineer goes, Oh, that's distorted. I go, Oh, that's kind of cool. I said, I'll keep it. I'll use it one of these days, you know? So we added that to a regular Lynn thing. And that's where the bass drum sound came from. That was just those two put together. So it was an actual mistake and a sample, and a good sample put together that made a sound. We were trying to get past the single life snare sound because I really like the single life snare sound. That was pretty cool. But Larry wanted to take that up even more, you know? So we ended up recording him, his hand clap in the hallway of the studio. Um, it was Quadraphonic Sound on 7th Avenue. Quad Studios, I don't even know if they're still there. It was like between... 48 and 49th Street. So it was Larry, you know, in this hallway 
into an AMS, and then we slap that on top of another sample that I already have. It's mostly that and his hand clap with that big hall. It was like, you know, we're on the 11th floor. And, you know, and that was, you know, it was a really interesting thing, but it was, um, Remember the engineer's name, the French guy, great guy. Anyway, it was such a collaborative effort with everybody because there were so many people like involved between me, Larry, the engineer, you know, everybody in that room brought that, helped bring that whole sound together, you know. But then, so then I, you know, I programmed the beat to where I got it feeling right, you know, because a lot of time I would just take the quantize off. I'd probably put the bass drum would be quantized. And then sometimes I'd take like the snare quantize off and just play it in till I got it to feel right. Because you know when you're playing, if you look at it on a grid, if everything's on the grid, it just feels very squared off and not feeling right. You know, it's just kind of like that movement inside of the bar to where it's like, it's gotta be the same. You know, you always want that snare in a certain place. But so I, I would mess with it till I got that vibe right. You know, and once that was just like when you're playing, you, you can be playing something for a while and you go, oh, this is where it goes. It goes right here, you know? So once we got that rhythm right, then we started programming the whole piece, you know, and then we just figured out the arrangement and added some hits, the, all the different stuff, you know? It was great. But, you know, it went fast. That's the thing. It wasn't a thing that was really labored over because there was so, such great energy in, in that room that the ideas were just flying. You know, and so things were really, I did that whole record in less than a week. It just all what? kind of was like, boom. Yeah, it was easy. Well, you know, again, the transition from the 70s to the early 80s, where there were bands with 10 people to a band with three people, quote unquote, a band. But it's really Larry, you, I guess the engineer, and I guess there were other people in this uh, studio at the time. It wasn't It wasn't entire you know, a big band back then with Cameo, was it mostly just him giving you the inspiration and the ideas? Or were there other people in the band also working with you? Well, it was Larry and then Tom, Tommy Jenkins was in the band still and Nathan Lieutenant. Those were the three key players. Uh, they brought up a guitar player from um, Atlanta, Pat Buchanan, because he was a rock guy. He was really great. Was Charlie he, he was Singleton? Pardon? Was Charlie Singleton helping out also? No, Charlie wasn't in. in I, I never recorded with Charlie. Mm, okay, he was he was gone during the, the period I was in because Cameo kind of went into a slightly funky rock thing. Like you know, they had um, alligator woman, white, but white guitar player, white drummer, white mm. keyboard player with the rest of the band. So they they wanted kind of a little bit more of a rock funk rock thing happening. You know, so they kind of pick those play us to kind of bring that in, you know, um, I lost the question. What was it? Um, so it was Nathan, Tommy and oh, yeah. Larry. So it's mostly Larry. Larry had the vision. You know, he wrote those songs with Tom him and Tommy wrote most of those songs. Um, we had some of the, uh, Kevin Kendricks, I think was his name, piano player played a while. Kevin Hendricks, Kendricks, uh, he played there, but it was mostly when we were doing the basic tracks, it was me and Larry and an engineer, you know, and Larry would kind of sing the idea, go, here's, here's a song going like this, and it's going to be a verse, you know. I mean, on the first album, on Single Life, he actually went in the studio, recorded the drum parts, just quick pass of them, and then I put those on a cassette tape, and then I would just 
mimic it. I would record, I would do what he did. I would reprogram what he played in the machine and then add a few little things, you know, add some stuff to it to make it mine. But he would, he would lay, really lay it out on the first album. The second album, we just kind of would talk back and forth and do it and do the arrangement. But it was most, you know, Larry had a lot of vision, you know, and even the sound. He, there was no reverb on anything. If you listen, if you listen to the Word Up record, he didn't want reverb on anything. You weren't even allowed to monitor. It's like he fired an engineer once for putting reverb on. He's like, get out of here. I told you no reverb. Fired him. Wow. Yeah, it was hardcore. So again, you did Attack Me With Your Love too? Yep. Single Life? Yep. I've Got Your Image? Yep. Damn. You don't know how many times I listen to these albums, man. You know, but also, again, being a drummer, I was growing up playing along to his stuff, you know, in the late 70s. I can't name it. Can't, and now the, 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 the songs are going to uh, elude me. But, um, you know, playing Cameosis and then uh, Knights of the Sound Table into... Uh, Okay, shame, man. I need more. She's strange. Oh my God, she's strange. That that drum beat. Everyone in high school wanted to play that drum beat. It's like, can you play yeah. this? I can play that. Can you? Yeah. And then exactly. Yeah. And then do do. Yeah, I still playing that live was was great. There's there's some footage on YouTube of us in London playing that. Really. Yeah, yeah. I wonder awesome. came, did you ever ask him what was the inspiration for that? Well, he was just trying to do that whole hip hop rap thing, you know. And, ah. and uh, he just, you know, Larry's—he's a unique guy. He just, again, these thoughts just come in his head. He's, he was—he's just so talented. You know, he played that on a Simmons kit, you know, and uh, I think that's an SDS five kit. He played—that's not programming. He played that. Yes, yeah, it sounds like that. Plus, there was a, a a rap to that too. There was like a remix where he was rapping over. Well, that's a rap in in general. The song is a starts out with a rap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. Brilliant. He's just brilliant. One little uh, digression. I, I don't want to take up too much time on this because I, I should just talk to you offline. But man, I wanted to get this on <laughs> on record. I. During the lean years, when I wasn't working as much, and I started a family, and I was like, you know what, maybe I need to get a real job. I got a job selling life insurance. So I got a list of people to call. And one of the people that I called was, uh, had Blackman on the name. So I called up, and it was, I can't remember the person's name, but it happened to be Larry Blackman's son. And I called up, and I went to go visit, uh, the, his wife. So I went to her house. I was like, you know, my name's Clayton Craddock. I am a financial uh, a financial services representative for MetLife. You know, we can do this and blank, blank, blank. She was like, okay, yeah, I hear you. I hear you. I did my pitch and then I, you know, we wound up finishing the interview, not interview, but my sales pitch. Then I was walking around and I saw a picture of like Cameo in like 1978. I was like, how do you know these guys. Oh, uh, my uh, husband is uh, whatever Larry Blackman's son is. I can't remember his name again. I was like, Larry. what? It's Larry. Larry Jr. I was like, what? And so we started talking, oh yeah, Larry, Larry's going to be 
Larry isn't really into politics, and he was campaigning for the reelection of Mike Bloomberg in the uh, 2000s. And he said, yeah, Larry's going to be at this thing, and, and Larry Blackman's going to be there too, his father. I was like, what? So I went there, and I, I didn't get a chance to meet Larry Jr., but I saw Larry Blackman, first and only time I ever met him. I walked to him. I said, hey, man, so great to meet you. Uh, you know, is there any way that you can tell me, you know, what's going on? I forgot the name of the album. Uh, it was like a, it was an album that was like one of their albums be, right before uh, She's Strange. And it was, it was a, an album that wasn't, uh, it was like a cutout at the time, basically, Albums right. that, that were disbanded, really. So I was like, you know, can you tell me, you know, this is going to be re-released? It's like, oh, man, you know, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on one second, brother. Hold on. He saw this woman walking by. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. Yeah. He went to go talk to some lady. I was like, okay, I get it, dude. I get uh, it. Well, if I see it, next time I see him, I'll ask him. <laughs> I'll let you know. Yeah, so... Anyway, that was my my brush with pretty fun, yeah. <laughs> with Larry. Yeah. So you did all this programming with Cameo, and now did it raise your it, did it raise your profile in the the programming world? I know you said eventually you were like I, I don't I don't want to do this programming stuff. You went on tour with Cameo, and uh, did you go on tour with other people at that time in the mid eighties? No, not much. You know, I, I, um, what happened was I did the single life record, went on tour with them. And I was like, this is great. I love playing in the band, huge horn sections, big band, you know, it's awesome. Then word up came out. And then all of a sudden everybody wanted that. They're like, Hey, you got to do this to our record. And I was like, that's pretty hard, pretty high bar to reach. You know, it's, you know, being able to accomplish that once is to me, is just like, I can't believe I even got to do that. But like trying to repeat that is pretty hard. But all of a sudden, I was like one of the top call session programming guys. So, you know, I went to double scale. I was making a ton of bread. And so Larry asked me to go on the road that, you know, for the Word Up record. And I was just like, I don't know if I can, Larry. And he says, well, you know, we're paying you, you know, $12.50 a week, and that's 1250 I said, yeah, I, I really can't afford to do that, Larry. He goes, well, we'll, we'll pay a little bit more. And I, I said, yeah, I can't, Larry. He goes, well, what are you making now? I said, well, I'm making between 1500 and two grand a day. Oh, my so, God. Well, there was just, there was such a demand for it. And it was double scale. And it was basically me and Jimmy Braylauer doing most of the work in town. Uh, Jimmy being the king, he was amazing. You know, he really did a whole scene with that and I loved what he did, but I was just like, I couldn't do it, you know? And as much as I wanted to go play with them, you know, I couldn't do it. And he understood. So I still did the next record machismo with him, but, um, I just, my, I got so busy between commercials and records that, you know, I'd be turning down tons of work. It was just, I turned down more than I would have gotten paid touring. So it was just, it was just, you know, the time, the eighties was, was flush, you know, there were labels, a lot of label money. There was just a lot of bread going around. So it's a different scene than right now. You know, it's like the tail end of the, the golden age of recording, you know, through the eighties into the early nineties. And then it kind of really dissipated. You know? mm. By the way, I was looking, I'm looking at their discography 
Again, I, I grew up when I when I first really heard about cameos, uh, cameo. It was the Cameosis record, nineteen eighty. I just loved that record, and of course, feel me. I was into Knights of the Sound, Knights of the Sound Table, and Alligator Woman. That's like they were at their peak for me. And then they came up with an album called Style. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh god, man. Mm. I know you guys are trying to recreate the success of Alligator Woman, but it wasn't. Nobody really liked it other than me. I kind of like some of the songs in there. That's the <laughs> album that I that I asked Larry about, and then of course she, she's strange came out, and then right. you took him to another level with Single Life, and then Word Up and Machismo, Machismo yeah. or Machismo. Now this. Uh, did you do Skin I'm Into? Yeah, that you know I'm really that song is kind of relevant today. You know, it's like yes, that's it a is. great song. And I just remember cutting that one because we cut that at the hit factory. I was actually doing Hall and Oats and Cameo. And I do commercials in the morning, Hall and Oats in the afternoon, Cameo at night. And I remember cutting, coming down to cut because we were both in the hit factory, Hall and Oats and Cameo. So I went, I remember like bringing my gear up and down, just switch from this floor to this floor every day, you know. And um, making that record was great, Skin on Men. That's a great record and, you know, pretty strong you know lyrically and musically on every level so yes yeah some of their songs still have relevance to this day like um of course skin i'm in and uh talking out the side of your neck yep about politics politics and politicians yeah like he he was saying things that would make you think yeah and make you dance at the same time but going back to Machismo, Machismo, is a song called uh, one of my favorite grooves, which, again, I'm sure you probably did, Soul Tightened. Yep. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> that drum beat is just fucking cool, man. I'm sorry, well, man. Yeah. I'm sorry for spending so much time with this, but let's... let's no, no, let's, no, I appreciate it. I, I appreciate it. You know? This is the so, guy that... Go ahead. Another thing I would say about the cool thing that I really liked about Larry was um, him and I didn't have any kind of like color issues and racial issues. You know, it was never even like discussed. We we just both kind of went like, you know, we were very like minded as far as grooves and music and stuff. And he was like him and all the whole thing, you know, was very accepting and very welcoming of me into that whole band, you know? It was just kind of like, it wasn't an issue of you're black, I'm white. That was never an issue. And I really appreciated that it was just, we would just came together musically, and then that, that was the thing. We were just like brothers, drumming brothers and music brothers, and it was really, uh, to me, and I get kind of chills just thinking how great that always felt with them, to like be accepted, and just the way it was just such an, that was never an issue with us. And it was really, it was really a great thing. And still is to this day with him, you know, when I see him. So. so one good thing about, one of the better things about being a musician in general, it's like the, the color or even sex thing doesn't really matter. It's like, can you play? It's a true meritocracy. And I love that. That's what it should be. Yes. Yeah. So, Word Up led to working with Hall and & Oates yep. and, and others. So, what did you do with Hall and & Oates? And then that led to stuff with 
other people like Pat Metheny and Ziggy Marley and yeah, that was that was a great one, Ziggy. I remember working with him. Got to meet Rita. She was awesome. Ziggy was awesome too, man. He's the real deal. He heard the littlest, tiniest changes and hi hat patterns and stuff. He was very in tune with all that. But we did this tune, uh, "Look Who's Dancing." Oh my god! Another, <laughs> hug. Another hug. I used to be the little part time DJ in the early '90s, and I used to play that song. And that beat was, man. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, do you know who you you're seeing right here? Is is one of my serious inspirations right yeah, here? Yeah, yeah. Well, Seriously, that groove is no joke. But go ahead, talk about Ziggy again. I'm sorry for no, talking. It was just it was just a great day. You know, I went in there and recorded, and um, the, again, the real deal. He was just you know very welcoming. You know, got this Italian kid coming in playing on a reggae record. You know, and it was uh, it was awesome. But you know, it just kind of. You heard this, the song, it's great, it's a great song, you know, and, and you know, that was good. You know, all these things, they just, you know, one leads to another, I'm doing hall notes, from that I get this, from that I get this. Will Lee recommended me to uh, Pat Metheny. You know, this just, it was like I was saying earlier, everything you do leads to the next thing you're going to do. Even the things you don't do kind of lead to the next thing, you know? So there's always a path. There's always something for me, at least in I'm not speaking for anybody but myself. I can find something good in the worst situation because again, for me, if something doesn't happen for me, that means there's something else over here that's going to happen or that I'm, I'm supposed to be doing. So I don't worry about when I don't get a gig or if I get fired from a gig, unless, you know, I look at why I was wondering why am I not doing this gig? You know, I'll take a true um, inventory of what happened. But everything leads to something else. So I'm, I take all those all those losses as positive feedback. It's like a way to move forward. You, know? you work with Anita Baker, mm-hmm. Joan, Joan Osborne. Were these on the records, or were you doing live stuff with them? All records. I I, I didn't start touring again until 2000 with Cindy. I, I had pretty much um, decided to do sessions. After Word Up came out, I decided to stay in town. You know, I did a few, did a couple little Japanese things uh, with this uh, band, The Hammonds, which was Jeff Bova and Akiko Yano. Um, I did a little tour of Japan with them, which was awesome. I love Japan. But um, I'm mostly focused on, on recording. And then until 2000, when I met Cindy, recording a record with her. And then I ended up joining her band for at least 10 years. So how did you meet Cindy Lauper? Find out the answer in part two of my interview with Sammy Marandino. Thank you for listening to the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast. Head over to the Broadway Drumming 101 YouTube page where you'll find unedited conversations that I've had with some of your favorite musicians. On the YouTube page, you're going to find bonus content that I don't feature on my Instagram page or here on the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and click on that little bell at the top so that you'll be notified when a new video is uploaded. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for more.